everyone. I'm so delighted to have this conversation today with Charlene Gandhi, a reporter career media focusing on small business owners, entrepreneurs, previous freelance climate food and business journalists. She has written for the Stanford Social Innovation Review, Days, Galdet, and a lot more. She actually just got her first full-time job in journalism after a while working as a consultant and then also being a freelance journalist on the side. Talks about a lot of the hard realities about the journalism industry that not a lot of people want to talk about but it is a really fun interview and she has amazing advice for everybody if you're interested in journalism or not this is a really really good conversation so without further ado here's Charlene amazing so uh I'm very excited to be here with Charlene Gandhi did I pronounce this right you did yeah a reporter at Korean Media And we are going to ask you some questions about your journey so far as a journalist. So, Charlene, welcome. Tell us where you're from, where you're at in this middle, in the middle of this pandemic, and what is it that you do? Cool. Well, thank you so much, firstly, for having me, Isabel. I'm super excited to, to be here and to chat with you. But yeah, so as Isabel's just said, my name's Charlene Gandhi. I am a reporter at Korea. Um, I was born and brought up in London and after a few stints around the world, I've ended up here. I love it. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Um, and I've just moved house very excitingly. Um, so I'm in a new little corner of London doing a bit more exploring and hoping that it stays not super cold for the rest of the year. <laughs> Likewise, I definitely don't want the cold. I'm good with it the way it is right now. Yeah, that would be fab. I can hear rain out of my window and I'm not enjoying it. And Charlene, tell us what has been the worst job experience you've ever had. Sure. So this is really interesting because probably my previous job was part of the reason that I am not at that job anymore. Um, you know, a completely separate issue to that was that I always wanted to be a journalist anyway. So I was trying to get into the journalism space for ages. But prior to this, I was working for a major consulting firm. And in and of itself, I think the consulting wasn't for me, but I'm, I'm quite low maintenance in that I can usually do a job that doesn't really speak to my passions, as it were. Like, I don't think that every single job requires you to be super passionate about it. But I think the reason that I really struggled here was because I wasn't being listened to. And to be honest, my mental well-being, my mental health wasn't being taken into account. You know, I was being given work that was, it was stretching, but at the same time, it was a little bit too challenging. And I was quite junior in my career. And, you know, just, just being given almost a little bit too much exposure to the outside world in one go. And I think all of that coupled with the fact that when I asked to to move and to be to be accommodated a little bit better I wasn't really listened to um, and I think that for me looking back has been such a big learning and growing experience in terms of what I should be able to ask from my employers and what they should be able to provide me with so you know that was one of the major experiences that that led me to wanting to leave consulting but you know I'm really happy to say that right now where I work people are so conscious of of mental health they're so conscious of of you as a whole person, where I don't feel some companies have quite mastered that, you know, recognizing you as a full human being and recognizing that you have other commitments and priorities outside of your job. Yes, no, definitely. And I'm sorry you had that experience. That's uh, okay. I think everybody goes through it. And to be honest, while I wouldn't wish it on anyone, 
it has made me a much more stronger and resilient person. And while I hate the use of the word resilience in a work context sometimes, because I think it can be perverted and used in a way that doesn't really mean anything and doesn't take into account somebody's struggle. In my life in general, it has made me a much more resilient person and it made me know what I need to ask for, really. That's great. So let's start from the beginning. So from what I know, you studied marketing in university, right? Correct. So yeah. Did you uh, at the time wanted to be a journalist? So how was your path in terms of choosing what you graduated, graduating and then getting your first job? Sure. So it honestly, it starts way before I even went to university. So I grew up reading and writing a lot and um you know in the early days it was very much creative writing poetry you know when you're younger you have that creativity that comes to you a bit more inherently than when you're older but i think i realized very early on in my life when i was still in school that i wanted to write full time and whether that was as an author or as a journalist um i didn't mind in what capacity but i knew that my art was writing now I think everybody sort of has a bit of a reality check. Um, you know, maybe it comes at different times, but it comes generally between late teens and like early twenties. And I think I sort of had a reality check when I was applying for university and I thought, is there much, is there a future in journalism? And it really scared me at that point, which is surreal because I was 17 and already thinking about, you know, things like financial stability, which I think actually a lot of people from immigrant families are inherently thinking about that kind of thing. So whilst at the time it didn't feel like the right decision to make, I do recognize that there were factors that, you know, ingrained in the way that I thought that meant that I chose to do something at university that wasn't directly related to, to journalism. So with that in mind, I went to business school. Um, I was okay at it. I was very good. I did enjoy my time. To be honest, what I took away from going to business school was probably that I didn't really want to work in big business, which I think a lot of people our age are taking away from those sorts of experiences now. But I do really like business in and of itself as a concept. Um, you know, I like this idea of people making something of their own, making something that they're passionate about. And, you know, these projects that people are working on day in, day out, which take the form of a business. I think is really inspiring. And, you know, in a roundabout way, that has led me to getting my job at Courier because Courier is a specialist publication where we look at entrepreneurship and small business. You know, I wouldn't have been able to do the writing that I'm doing today had I not gone to business school. So, you know, in a roundabout way, it all worked out really well for me. But I think there's definitely a takeaway in that in having a specialism when it comes to the type of journalism that you want to do sometimes can serve you really well. Sometimes there's a debate about whether or not you can be a generalist or a specialist. But in my experience, the more and more I've found opportunities is when I've been approached as a specialist journalist on a specific topic. I think when you're a generalist in this space, it tends to become very challenging to find work because you're just competing with a much larger pool of people. Did you find it stressful to start, you know, writing for anyone at the beginning? Did you suffer for any imposter syndrome or confidence crisis? Oh, hugely. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody does because, and I think this is anybody who has a creative outlet. It's so personal that at the beginning, it always feels like you're exposing part of yourself when you're doing it to to make money. So yeah, I absolutely did have a lot of imposter syndrome because like I said, when I was younger in writing, it was a lot more creative. And I thought, you know, I don't have any journalists in my family. I don't have 
anyone working in media, I don't have anyone working in arts, you know, who do I go to? But the more and more I found people, specifically women of colour, on Twitter who were, you know, really, really carving a path for themselves in journalism and in media, the more inspired I was that it was possible. So yeah, and I think, you know, imposter syndrome is very natural. And I still get it day in, day out. You know, I've not been at Korea for very long. Um, and whilst I enjoy my job greatly, and I think I'm, I'm okay at what I do, you know, it still comes, it's still that niggling thought in the back of your head that's like, you know, what could I do better? So, you know, you, you sort of have to address that thought, I think, but, but know that you're in a position that makes the best use of your skills at the time. I think those are all really good advice. And it's funny because I actually was very lost growing up in terms of what I wanted to do. Because again, like you, I didn't have a lot of people working in creative industries to rely on in terms of role models. One of the things that I thought I wanted to study was journalism. And my parents were very against it because they thought it was better to be a specialist in something and then learn how to write about it. Uh, in the end, I'm obviously not a journalist. You know, it's, it's interesting that you had that advice as well or like that insight of what to do. But I think it's also really cool to understand that you were able to go from, you know, working as a consultant and, you know, going into marketing and so on and jump into being uh, journalists. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be super useful. Like we have a lot of writers and freelance writers in our community. So I think it would be cool if you could give us any tips of how you started to do the shift. How, where did you know where to apply? Uh, if you knew how to do that, how to pitch, mm -hmm. any advice you could give, I think that would be super interesting because you've written for a lot of like great places like Days and Galdem and so on. I think the first piece of advice that I would give is to be realistic with, with what that market is looking like at the moment. It's extremely challenging. And I think more and more every day you're seeing that pool of freelance writers grow every single day. And all of them are trying to um, forge relationships with editors. And, you know, you've got hundreds of people applying for single jobs. So you know, it's something that I have that reminds me every single day. Literally, I have a reminder on my phone every single day that at 9am, it comes up and it says, work smarter, not harder. Because a lot of time when you're in the freelance journalism space and pitching, it becomes a quantity over quality situation. People think that if you pitch constantly every single day, then you're bound to get a commission. If you try to apply this to any other part of your life, you'll notice that the quality of what you do decreases drastically. So what you're better off doing is making sure your pitch is incredible, making sure that you've highlighted why it's important now, why you're the best person to write it, and make sure that goes out and make sure you sit on that for ages. Um, you know, you want to make it as good quality as possible. And that is really how you get your, your foot in the door is making sure those two questions are answered. Why now and why you? Because naturally, a lot of these places also have staff editorial teams. And we are unfortunately seeing a lot of issues with freelancers at the moment, particularly pitching ideas and those ideas being handed back to staffers, which is a big loophole in the industry, but something that really needs to be addressed. But when you address that question of why, why am I the best person to write this, that helps mitigate that problem. So that's sort of piece of advice. Number one, um, the other piece of advice, especially for those of us who, like me, 
had a full-time job and were looking to transition is um, you've got to put the hours in, unfortunately. Um, it's not an easy slog. Um, I don't shy away from talking about how I made the switch, which was quite literally, I did my nine to five. I then took some time away from my laptop. I would have dinner, sit with my family and friends. And then from about 9pm onwards, I'd be back on my laptop, this time with a freelance journalist hat on. Um, and I'd stay there until about midnight or, you know, sometimes half past one in the morning and that was made a lot easier with lockdown to be honest because you know I wasn't having to get up in the morning and commute and and do all that good stuff but you do have to put the hours in the other thing with putting the hours in is that it really shows that you're ambitious and that you're committed don't shy away from it and if you're passionate I think sometimes that just comes inherently Um, and again this is something that I see with a lot of writers your writing will just come regardless of the time of day If you allow yourself that routine, it will just come. That's not a very pretty piece of advice. I completely get that. But I certainly would not have got my job without it. So, yeah, I think those would be my main two pieces of advice is why now? Why you? Make sure that's in your pitches and put the hours in. We are looking for real life advice. I mean, I think we all want to the industries that we work in to change or become better. But it is something that we need to understand like the limitations of where we work with you know of course I would like for all arts internships to be paid as well but I'm not going to change that just by pretending that that is not a reality you know so I appreciate your candor about it yeah definitely and I think more and more we actually need to have some of these more difficult decisions sorry difficult conversations rather of you know when you are working full-time and you're not really willing to give up that stable income to go completely freelance that's okay that's not for everybody it certainly isn't and was never for me I freelanced on the side because I couldn't hack the thought of sometimes not having any income month on month if nobody accepted my pitches you know that was too risky for me you know it goes back to what I was saying earlier about coming from an immigrant family and sort of financial stability being really well ingrained into into my psyche you know almost a bit too ingrained so I couldn't give that job up But that meant that I had to find the hours somewhere else to do my writing. Yeah, you know, if you if you do feel like giving up your full time job isn't for you, that's completely fine. And I just want people to know that that's okay. And it's it's just about finding that those pockets of free time somewhere else to, to do what you love. Did you ever have to write for free or did you ever decide to write for free for a portfolio building or anything of that sort? Yeah, um, I think a lot of people, to be honest, start off writing for free. So I'd say my first, I'd say my first ever big publication at the beginning of my freelance career was probably August 2018. Now, I wasn't paid for the first time until May 2019. So I did a lot of free work. Looking back, I don't advocate for it because it's a lot of labour. And I wouldn't advise doing a lot of it. I'd probably say, you know, do one piece a month or do, you know, do what your schedule allows you to do if it's free labor and if it's volunteering. And it's a difficult decision to make because I, again, like I say, I was in the very privileged position of also being in full-time employment at the time. So I didn't necessarily need the extra cash. So again, it's not a viable option for everybody, which is completely fine. But that, you know, just to give you an indication, I was probably writing 
free of charge for about nine months. But, you know, looking back, it's definitely not something that I advocate for. And, you know, that's part of the problem with journalism today and why it's full of a certain class of people um, is that a lot of these places that you write for aren't able to compensate or you know if there's an internship on offer it's either they pay you expenses only if you're lucky or anything or nothing at all and that means a lot of the time that the people of a certain social class who are able to be supported financially by their parents are the ones who end up in journalism and we see the problems that we see today with the media and so I completely and totally get that writing for free isn't a viable option for everybody what I would say though is if you do choose to write for free know when to stop because once I got my first paid piece of writing in May 2019, I then didn't accept anything for free after that because A, it was a massive sum of money. You know, I didn't even know that you could get paid that much for writing. But after that, I thought, why am I bothering doing this for free when actually I could get paid for it? So it's certainly a delicate balance and it's one that you have to find your own comfort with, I think. I have never been a journalist, so I have no idea how things operate. You know, <laughs> all honestly, although I am obsessed with journalists, but you know, I think I still have this romanticized idea of what it's like. It's hard if you're from the outside to really understand what's what's expecting you inside, you know. But yeah. I'm sure there are some good parts of it as well. Oh, definitely. And I want to talk about all of that, but before that, I just want to go back just a little bit, and I want to know, how was your experience and that volunteer program in Burkina Faso, and how did you end up there? Oh, God, it was like one of the best experiences I've ever had. So how I ended up there was that about three or four years ago, the UK government used to run what was called the International Citizen Service Programme, which is ICS, which I believe they've since stopped. But essentially what it was, in a nutshell, was that they'd send young people uh, to partner nations um, to do a 10 or 12 week uh, volunteering placement. You'd be paired with a local organisation, um, you know, completely grassroots organisations. And you'd also have an in-country volunteer counterpart. So, you know, you'd do lots of your learning from them. So, you know, it was a phenomenal experience. At the same time, I, looking back, I really do recognise that it perhaps had its flaws in that, you know, we as Western people got to go over and spend 10 or 12 weeks in these countries that are often exoticized and, you know, fantasized about. And those people didn't get the opportunity to come here and see how our lives were. And I often do now think about the continuity of those projects as well with people coming every 10 or 12 weeks, you've got a fresh batch of volunteers coming. I do wonder whether that is actually serving much good. But when I compartmentalise and sort of put all of that aside, it was it was incredible. And I think the reason that I loved it so much was because there was just this real warmth to the people there. And it's interesting because I, you know, a lot of people who come from non-Western cultures, I think, share this perspective where you sort of live between two different, very different cultures. And generally, Western, European, American cultures are a bit more reserved, a bit more individualistic. And then you've got you know, everywhere else in the world that's just so, so community focused, you know, there's the line between blood relations and community is just non-existent, you know, everybody is family. So I definitely have that, that side in me because I come from a huge Indian family and I, you know, was like brought up around all of them. So I just like adore 
this idea of fierce community. And I think that's why I loved being in Burkina so much was, you know, we were literally in the middle of nowhere for 10 weeks, but I, you know, made such good friends with all the women there because I was one of the only volunteers who could speak fluent French. So, you know, I was just like, everybody was my mum. And it was great. I loved it. And they loved having me around because I was able to speak their their language metaphorically. You know, I was able to speak this language of like fierce community and saying hi to everybody where some of the the Western entrepreneurs perhaps were a little bit more entrepreneurs. That's not what I meant. Volunteers. Some of the Western volunteers were perhaps a little bit more reserved when it came to that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know you said about when you pitch to write about why you're the person to write about something. Was your, you know, this mixed identity of being, you know, brought in the UK, but having this Indian heritage ever something that you rely on, or, you know, used to differentiate yourself? Or is that like, did your background ever interfere, not interfere? impact or inform your decisions of what you wanted to write and yeah that's a great question um and I think yes and no so I'll answer the the no first actually the no because this is a personal choice but I didn't really write very much from a personal standpoint when I was trying to build my writing portfolio it was purely a choice that I made that I wanted all of my journalism to be objective um I obviously write at the beginning did a few personal essays but as I was getting paid more and more I tried to steer away from doing some of those uh, opinion and personal and identity based pieces. Why I think it still did impact was because of my language skills. And I think this is something that I would say to anybody who's from, a, you know, a background where they live in one country and uh, have parents from another. Use your language skills to your advantage um, if you have them, because they are not only rare in this economy, but especially in journalism, when you have access to entire pockets of places that some most of your team might not have access to is amazing. Um, you know, I have done interviews in French, I've done interviews in Hindi, I've done interviews in Gujarati, which is a regional uh, language in India. And I want to continue doing that as much as possible. So it's a really underappreciated skill when it comes to journalism. But if I had advice for people who have a multilingual background, it would be that. I love that advice. I can't even understand how you speak so many languages. <laughs> it sounds like a lot, but I promise most Indian languages, I say two, but they all sound very similar. So, you know, anybody who's from South Asia will know this, but most of them, um, especially sort of North West India, and Pakistan and Bangladesh, once you pick up one, you can kind of sort of understand the rest. So, you know, I could even, I could half say I understand Urdu, for example. I probably don't, but, you know, it's similar enough to the other two that I probably could. And I did French at university, so that's my cheat into there. Okay, we are going to test you at the end. Like, oh, surprise, crap. surprise, oral test. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I was not prepared for this. Well, I can test you, but I won't, be, I won't know if you're saying, you know, the correct answers. I mean, because I don't speak Urdu or Hindi, so <laughs> I think you're safe. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, I was like starting to sweat there a little bit. Uh, basically, I want to go back now and talk about career and how was it? Did you know anyone there? Did you just apply for your job? And you started around three months ago. So you started in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. Not just as a journalist, but as a reporter. So how has it been the process of being onboarded on a company now and 
you know, being a reporter, which is something that you usually go more or less on the field for and doing everything from your own home. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I'll answer the first question first, which is how how did I get into Korea? So I I saw the reporter job and I probably saw it in May when it first got posted and I looked at it and I thought, wow, what a great job, but there's no way I'm going to get that. So I actually didn't apply for it. And then the post sort of stayed up and I was like, why how, Why is it still up? You know, a role like this, a company like this, why has it not been filled yet? And genuinely, Isabel, I woke up on a Saturday morning and I thought, screw it, I'll just put an application in. You know, it will take two hours. It's weird that it hasn't been filled yet. So let's just give it a go. Now, by this point, I had been applying for jobs for over a year. So you know, it comes back to what I was saying with pitches where I had to be a bit more deliberate with the jobs that I was applying for. Because if I had gone for literally every single reporter job that came my way, the quality of my applications would have been horrific. So by taking some time away and being a bit more deliberate about the jobs that I wanted to apply for, my the quality of my applications was slightly better as well. So yeah, I saw this job, was really like worried about why it wasn't filled yet. And yeah, put my application in on a Saturday. Danny Giacopelli, who's my boss and the editorial director at Courier, gave me a call maybe four or five days later. Um, and he reminded me, I'd actually forgotten about this. He reminded me that when I was 17, I emailed him for an internship at the place that he used to work at, which was Monaco. I had completely forgotten about that. So part of the reason that he called me was because he remembered my name from eight years ago. How phenomenal is that? So I would, again, sorry, I'm going to slip a tip in here, but network. And I know sometimes that's a dirty word and doesn't really mean anything. So I would add to that network intentionally. Um, you know, know what you want from people, know what you want to ask from people and you'll get it. I think, you know, it might take eight years like it took for me, but here we are. Yeah, Danny gave me a call on the Thursday. I had my second interview perhaps the week after. And then um, within two weeks, I was offered the job. So pretty crazy. Um, but I think there was something about the pandemic that for a lot of people, um, especially when we all started working from home, really heightened this sense of being in careers that they didn't want to be in. I was already in that space pre-lockdown because I was in a job that where I felt like they didn't really care about my well-being. So I was already very ready to leave. I'd already been applying for jobs. And so for me, the process of transitioning didn't really feel that difficult. It felt like it needed to happen. And I felt relief. You know, I felt relief and I felt excitement and I felt like things were slotting into place. So yeah, it's it's been it's been wonderful. The last three months have genuinely been a dream come true and the whole team know this. I literally have wanted to be a journalist since I was like 11 years old. So it's it's I literally use the word dream come true. Um, and I, I mean, I mean that in the truest sense of, of the word, um, because it doesn't feel like I'm working every day. I, actually, I take that back. Work always feels like work, but it it's not as draining as it is when you're doing something that you genuinely love doing. And yeah, to your second question of reporting during a lockdown, it's difficult. It's not easy. Um, so a lot of the time, obviously, I'm on Zoom, I'm on video calls, um, I'm having to prep in advance for interviews. Um, I'm spending a lot of time googling and researching where before, like you say, I would have been in the field and sort of stories would have come a bit more naturally. 
would have been going to events. So stories would have come a bit more naturally and would have been traveling. So again, stories would have come naturally. So, you know, a lot of time is being spent on research, desk research. And I think the difficult part when you're remote, when you're reporting remotely is finding compelling angles and compelling stories. Because sometimes when you are exposed to things in person or in non-lockdown times, the angle of the story comes a lot quicker and a lot easier to you. I think when we're all at home and, you know, you're, so, you're somewhat starved of inspiration when you're at home as well. You know, you're not getting external stimulation. You know, you're not having conversations with people. You're not just seeing things on your walks that spark your imagination. I think especially in creative and media and arts industries, you're very much at risk of regurgitating the same content and um, reproducing the same narratives as as other people, and in our case, um, as other media platforms. So we constantly have to ask ourselves this question of, what are we saying that's new? What are we adding to the discussion? And, you know, this is something that I would also encourage a lot of young journalists to do is, A, read all the time, and B, know where the holes in that narrative are and try to fill them and always ask yourself, what are you adding that's new and why does it need to be heard? I feel that from reading the news that I feel like most media outlets get stuck into a loop. Everyone thinks like this now, so this is how we're going to report the news. And then things change and then everyone reports things in the same way. And you're like, surely... Someone is missing, you know, some point or something, especially when it comes, I think, to scientific-ish things. Yeah. There's a lot of holes in it. And yeah, but I'm really fascinated by it because I think at this day and age, the news cycles so fast uh, that it can be really difficult for you to have this moment to even step back, talk to someone else and, you know, put yourself in a position to listen to other voices and think about things in a different way. I think that is challenging. Yeah. And I don't know if I, I know how to do it, to be honest. No, that's exactly it. It takes creative thinking and creative thinking doesn't come easily or quickly. And the news cycle is immensely quick. Um, and, you know, I don't even work at somewhere that produces content daily. Um, the most frequently we produce content is weekly. And even then, with everything else that we've got going on, it's a lot. It's it takes time to step back and constantly ask yourself, what are we adding to this narrative? Now, that's one angle of it. The other angle is that a lot of major media companies are obviously run by rich white people, which is no surprise. But that is part of the reason that the narratives are the way they are, because you've got people in an, ed in an editorial team who just think a certain way. And, you know, it comes as no surprise that people hire people who look and think and talk like themselves so you've just got this constant cycle of people who think in a very similar way feeding the world's media and that's what leads to a lot of really damaging narratives and something that's really important when we think about news and media is not just how things are reported but what things are reported in the first place um, and it's something that's called agenda setting um, and it's you know, it's a term that I came across when I was studying abroad in the States about five years ago, and it's never left my brain. Because if you think about a half hour news slot, and they need to, you know, somehow get six, five minute stories into that half hour news slot, what six stories they choose, how, who, how do you decide that? So, you know, inherently, 
a lot of the time we see things like climate change get sidelined. We see things like, you know, protests by indigenous communities get sidelined. We see all this positive news get sidelined quite a lot because we continue to pander to narratives that feed a popular vision of what the world is. And, you know, a very real example of bad and unethical reporting and agenda setting was when reporters from um, a couple of major news corporations went out in boats um, a couple of months ago into the Mediterranean Sea to film migrants trying to cross the channel in dinghies. Now, A, you're going out there sticking a camera in these people's face, and B, you're on a boat that is perfectly safe while they're in a dinghy and you're having an interview with them. You know, it's just all levels of wrong. But for that to be authorised and allowed in the first place, to a lot of us, just seems wacky. So, you know, it's it is a lot about what gets airtime as well that that is really important and I think needs to we need to pay a bit more attention to to the stories that we choose to tell. That story of the migrant uh, interviews that was horrendous and it's just and- it's so inhumane, isn't it? That I remember at the time I watched it when it first came out and I thought something seems really off about this. You know, the fact that you are in a boat, you're wearing a life jacket and you're watching these people who you know have a tendency to pass away making this journey and you're you're thrusting a mic in their face. You know, what has to go through your head to to allow yourself to do that? And, you know, I, I don't want to only hold those journalists to account because it's a whole editorial team behind them who allowed that to happen. So it's it's really inhu- inhumane. And I think Unfortunately, a lot of media, mainstream media at least, still functions on these narratives. And, you know, you've got everything that has happened recently at the BBC where, you know, they've, they've put the wrong person's photo on to, to describe somebody else. And, you know, more often than not, it's a black person that, that they've failed to source the right photo for. And, you know, at, at an organization like the BBC where, you know, that really shouldn't happen at our national, you know, our national broadcaster. Um, you know, a similar thing happened at The Guardian, which again, major newspaper. But it just goes to show, doesn't it, that in those chains of approval, there is nobody who who knows, you know, what kinds of damaging narratives these are. And yeah, I just think it's it's really shocking. But that's another point to make in terms of media and journalism and trying to break into the industry is that what is happening now is perhaps because of quotas or because of pressure to hire more diverse newsrooms, maybe perhaps more women and more people of colour are getting access to, to newsrooms. What is a new phenomenon that's now taking place is that these people are failing to then get managerial and editorial and directorial roles, which are critical because that determines things like the stories that get told and the tone that they get told in. A lot of the time, journalists on the floor don't necessarily have that much of a say in how things get told. It obviously depends on the size of the media organisation. You know, for example, if you work for, you know, a small specialist publication, you're probably more likely to have a say as a reporter. If you work for a major news corporation, the likelihood that you're given a very specific brief and you just have to go and report is probably much higher. But when you don't have those diverse faces and opinions and perspectives in directing roles, then you continue to get this narrative perpetuating. So whilst it's all well and good to have a diverse newsroom, you need 
those diverse people and voices to be spread right across the managerial ladder. Absolutely. I think one thing that I really would like to work on with our program, even if it's on a small scale, is that it's not just about you know, people who are beginning their careers, but helping people who feel stuck to progress, because that's absolutely right. We need to have people at all levels, you know, from within to change that. And it's not going to be overnight because, you know, most there's, there's not that there's a lot of specialist, I guess, websites and so on. But of course, the mainstream media is still very much dominated by the same sort of narrative. Maybe a two-side narrative, but, you know, it's still made by very similar-looking people, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why these conversations about imposter syndrome are so valid and we need to continue to have them. You know, imposter syndrome comes and goes. It's not just something that you have at the beginning of your career or in your early days as a journalist or as a creative. It, It comes and goes. And I think it actually, in adult life, comes more and more when you go for promotions and where you go for new jobs or when you have a career change as you feel this intense sense of um, feeling as though you don't deserve it. So not only do we need to have imposter syndrome conversations with people who are starting out in their careers, but it's so important to continue to have those conversations, especially with women all across the age spectrum. Because, you know, whilst on one hand, yes, there is a lack of diversity when it comes to people of colour and black people and indigenous voices in media, we also don't see very many women at the top. So that's part of the the issue is because a lot of women don't feel like they have the the experience and the authority to apply for these jobs in the first place when actually they, they do, they just don't feel as though they've done enough. They feel as though they need to go above and beyond, but they've hit all the criteria when actually men are more likely to apply for a job when they've met, you know, like seven out of 10 pieces of criteria, which is so interesting, but just shows the way that, that women are conditioned a lot of the time. It's, you know, absolutely needs to continue to, to be at the forefront of conversations um, about career development with women. Absolutely. And I think your case is one of those. You at first almost didn't apply for (laughs) the position you're in. And I love the fact that you had emailed someone when you were super young. It's funny because we spoke to someone else uh, recently, another uh, one of our mentors who's a journalist in fashion and beauty. And she started working, like interning when she was 14, maybe. Of course, it was all unpaid, but she would go when she was in high school and go talk to journalists yeah, <laughs> and yeah. ask for an internship. And they would say, well, when you're in university, why in university? And then a few years later, that actually worked because someone remembered that she was that young kid working yeah. and, gave them, and gave her her first shot. So I think, you know, we should always try to network intentionally as you said and really make those connections if you're interested definitely and I think you know this might sound really wishy-washy but to be honest it's probably the reason I've got this job I think passion and ambition are spotted by other people who are passionate and ambitious and I think when it comes to things like journalism you don't go into it because you're doing it for the money you don't go into it because you're unsure you go into it because you you want that to be your day in day out you know i took a pay cut to be in this job and i couldn't be happier because to me my daily satisfaction was much more important than you know arbitrarily saving up for to buy a house in london because that's impossible anyway but that's another story <laughs> um but you know when 
when you are genuinely passionate and when you are genuinely ambitious, it's just an emotional state that that translates really well to other ambitious people. And I think you shouldn't shy away from from talking about your passions or your emotions or just how much you want to do something. Because, you know, if, you know, if in 10 years time, I was an editor of something or other, and somebody said to me, you know, I have wanted to be a journalist, like since I was in a nappy, you know, I have been writing for 20 years and I'm only 25 or you know something like that I'd be like yeah I want this person on board because this this is literally what they they want to like sleep breathe and eat you know it, it's incredible to see that kind of drive in somebody and I think I see that a lot in in younger journalists who are coming coming up at the moment I see a lot of drive to to make change in the industry which is really cool and really inspiring and I wish I could have been part of that little club you know three or four years ago but yeah, I think the more and more passionate you are, the more likely you're you're able to get ahead, to be honest. I love that. And I totally agree. <laughs> I, well, I would have loved to be that person with that sort of focus when I was young, as opposed to, you know, have 1200 interests and have no idea what I'm going to do with my life and just freak out and go, you know, try to buy beer when I was 16 instead of thinking about my future. So not maybe I shouldn't say that out loud. But no, yeah. it's <laughs> I feel like everyone has such like different like experiences of growing up. And I think, you know, I say all of this now as though like, you know, I didn't always think I was going to get a journalism job. Genuinely, when I was in my last consulting role, I had made my peace with the fact that I was just going to be in this like crappy role for maybe like the next 10 years, save up lots and then like then do my big move. Genuinely, I had that path mapped out in my head because I just wasn't getting anywhere with my job applications. So at some point, I think some part of you does start to give up. And I think that's completely natural because there's only so much rejection that, that people can take. So, you know, after like 12, 13 months of constantly applying for jobs, I was like, I'm not really getting anywhere with this. So why am I bothering? So in my head, I was like, do you know what? I can do this mediocre job for another like seven, eight, ten years. And then then we'll see, you know. Maybe by then I'll, you know, I'd planned it to the point where I was like, maybe I'll go on maternity leave and maybe I'll become a journalist then. There's <laughs> all this like stupid hypothetical stuff that like was so far into the future. So, you know, like on one hand, while I would like to say hard work and passion and ambition and all that stuff gets rewarded, I also recognise that it doesn't always get rewarded because also we have to accept the reality of the media and creative and arts industries also just not having that many jobs in them. So, you know, the proportion of people wanting those jobs to the jobs that are actually available is like skewing more and more every day, um, especially in the, the industries that we're all in. So it's a really, really difficult balance to strike. So, you know, on one hand, yes, work hard and work smart and be ambitious and be passionate, but also don't beat yourself up because it's a hard world out there. And there's a lot of factors that you can't control. Um, and, you know, in the context of media, we only have to look at how many people are constantly being made redundant in, in you know, quite major publishing houses. So there is only so much you can control. And part of, I think, for me, outside of the context of, of my professional life, just being able to manage my mental health and well-being generally has been recognising that I cannot control everything in my life. There are just things that happen to me and they will just happen and I will have to accept them and sit with them and let them pass. And I think sometimes that needs to be applied to, to professional contexts as well. You can only try so hard for stuff if, if you aren't 
being given the light of day. And I think that's another reality check for for us. I feel like I've given, given a lot of reality checks today. That's good, though. I think we need to, if, if anyone is listening to this, to figure out what is their path in journalists. So I feel like it's good if they have different voices and experiences to rely on, uh, because potentially some of them will have similar struggles and will know. And we tend to think that all of our struggles are just us, whereas it could be something with, you know, at the moment, if you want to work in events like I used to, not the best time to get a yes, job. Yeah, Let, exactly. let's, let's be honest. If anyone wants to get into the music industry right now, potentially not the best moment either. You know, not saying it's impossible, just like, well, could be other things that you could do right now that might be easier for you to get it if this is your first, right, attempt. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah, pick your industry wisely. But <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a difficult time for our industries, definitely. Yes, but we'll... If, if any industry can get out of this, it should be the creative industries because we are the most creative. Yeah, we're already used to really bad salaries, so I guess. <laughs> yeah, we don't need a lot. Well, we don't just literally, just some pay <laughs> will be good. <laughs> At this point, I feel like if you can buy like, an inflatable tent in London, you're already winning, you know. Honestly, like, that, I think that was part of also recognizing that some of my arbitrary financial goals wouldn't be met um you know there's a big thing in asian or indian culture specifically about you know owning property and not renting from people and i think that had sort of like seeped into my brain a little bit um that you know i wanted my first place that i moved to to be somewhere that i owned you can't really do that when you've taken a pay cut so hilariously straight after starting this job I've actually also moved into a new flat so I'm like breaking all the stereotypes right now but it's all it's all good it's all fun because buying in London is just it's not going to happen basically never going to happen no it's that's 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 a difficult problem to tell I'm not even going to try to solve that one but (laughs) since we started talking about good things I want to know we've been at Korea now for a few months has there been any stories that you really loved working on Oh, good question. Um, do you know what? Today, funnily enough, today was actually one of my like best reporting days. I probably, if it's okay, won't go into the detail of what the stories were, but I'll keep it quite high level. Today was one of my best reporting days because I just spent the whole day chatting to people who had founded carbon negative businesses. Now, in a nutshell, probably is obvious what a carbon negative business is. But it's a business that actively not only doesn't have carbon emissions at all, but actively somehow sucks additional carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. You know, they're not like these heavy, geeky, techie industries. It's like food and drink and, you know, beauty and skincare and, you know, this completely new way of working in manufacturing and building products that is carbon negative. Sorry, this sounds so geeky, but this is the kind of thing I love. Um, yeah, I'm obsessed. I can't wait to read this. <laughs> when is it going out? Because we're going to put it your podcast the same day it comes out, because I'm really desperate to read this. Now. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. I mean, I'm all this. I'm all the annoying climate stuff, you know, I'm plant-based, all, all, the, all the things. Same. I'm So I before Korea was a climate writer. So this kind of stuff just like gives me so much energy. So this is actually going to be part of our next print issue that comes out um, at the end of November, um, which is 
our last issue of 2020. Um, and obviously, it's a lot of um, obviously reflecting on uh, how COVID has shifted uh, the landscape for small businesses and um, you know the self-employed economy. Um, but also looking ahead to 2021, um, being optimistic in terms of some of the opportunities that have arisen as a as a result of COVID. Um, but also you know recognizing that that being a small business owner in these times is extremely difficult. You know we're not shying away from talking about the fact that. A obscene percentage of small businesses have had to close their doors over the last few months. Um, and that's not a position that anybody wants to be in because, you know, over 95% of our economy is made up of small businesses. So yeah, this will be in our next print issue. That's super exciting. I love that. Can't wait to read it. Me neither. And then, so then I, I promise I'll let you go. And I was going to ask this question at the beginning, but I got carried away. Great focusing skills here, but. Uh, I want to know what is your routine more or less like working with careers? So do you have meetings with editors? Do you decide the issues together? How is the day-to-day more or less? I know things change working in a smaller print like that. Yeah, sure. Firstly, I will I will preface by saying that no two days are the same. Um, you know, everything moves at such a pace that a lot of it is sort of, you wake up in the morning and you think you have your day set in front of you, you probably don't. So, you know, it's getting used to that uncertainty is is part number one of building a routine. But one thing that I found quite, I guess, surprising, but looking back, it, it sort of makes sense, is you never stop pitching. You are, as a reporter, despite working super closely with my editors, who I love, I'm still pitching to them. You know, I'm still like fighting for space about why I think this story matters and why it adds to this conversation um, and why it matters to small business owners who are the vast majority of our audience. So I'm constantly pitching and I think I'm getting better and better at it. And I think it just comes back again to practice makes perfect, right? So my day-to-day generally is a lot of speaking to my editors about stories that I found that I think deserve a place um, either in our email or in our newsletter or in our podcast or in our print like you name it I'm trying to find homes for these stories and a lot of a lot of our day-to-day really which is really interesting because I think people sometimes have this perception of journalism that it's a lot of writing and that's most of what you do and interestingly it's probably about 10 to 15 percent of what I spend my time on is actually writing a lot of my day genuinely is spent in like deep research internet rabbit holes <laughs> trying to find good stories. So I would say I probably spend about three to four hours a day doing that. Um, and then the rest of the time I divide up with just speaking to people, which in normal non-pandemic times would have been me going out into the field and going to events and you know speaking to people face to face. But in these times is obviously Zoom calls. So usually I'll have sort of uh, anywhere between one and four interviews a day. Hilariously, my last one today was somebody who was actually literally down the road from me. Um, what are the chances? My um, God. Yeah, we, I could have walked over to his house and done the interview, but yeah, we just chose to laugh it off and carry on. Yeah, that's that's generally what the day looks like. It's a lot of pitching, a lot, a lot of researching, um, and a lot of interviewing and chatting to people. Um, and I think for me, being an extrovert and being able to talk freely <laughs> generally quite freely has been quite invaluable in in that setting um and Isabel you know this as ha- being interviewed by me 
you just it's just a chat and it's really nice to just get to know what someone's doing it's their passion project and I just love it I get so much energy from from talking to people about what they love yes I'm the same and I was just gonna mention our interview that I when you interview me we spent 30 minutes talking about what you actually wanted to say and then at the other hour talking about Indian food so you know <laughs> I also get carried away quite easily talking to people because I love hearing other stories and we're going to be here forever. <laughs> we are, we are. It's it's very easy. And I think for me, it's always been about meeting somebody on the other side of the phone call who's like you, willing to have these fantastic conversations that just go on complete and total tangents. You know, I connect with people most that are like that because it's just the most like fruitful nourishing conversation to me when you can just go down any sort of like major rabbit hole and just have a chat about something that's completely unrelated to where you started which is probably exactly what we're doing right now <laughs> yes precisely but that's why it makes it so great at least you know <laughs> so you're Jenny, doing a great job thank you so much i feel like maybe i should have been a journalist in the end you see i think you'd make a great journalist i think you <laughs> asked, you've asked a very good question Thank you. So, guys, this is it. This is the end of our like networking. I'm never coming back. I'm just going to be Charlene's assistant. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I will take you on. I'll let you know when there's a job opening. Apply immediately. <laughs> um, Charlene, before I finally let you go, to you, I promise I'm going to let you go. Uh, what is one piece of advice you like to either give your younger self, so this can be personal, or if you don't want it to be personal, something that you would say to anyone starting out or trying to transition to a career in journalism can I do both yes please cool I think to my younger self I would say remember to have a good time you know I've talked about this a couple of times but sometimes there are a lot of expectations for women of color uh, girls and immigrant families um, and those expectations to be honest don't even necessarily always come from elders in your family or your parents or anything in my case it was just me I'd you know led myself to believe that I had to work super hard and come out on top and you know not allow myself breaks and rest and obviously eventually that lead, leads to burnout so you know I make it a point now to sort of you know radically have a bit of fun every so often it's still ingrained in me to to work hard um but now I know how to play hard too which is I think a real skill that people need to develop in this hustle economy and I think to other young people starting out in journalism alongside everything that I've said already in terms of tips I would say read read widely read passionately read works that have been translated from other languages, read not just media from the country that you're in or the country that you're from, read outside of your bounds, carve time out for reading. You know, you can never read too much. Every single piece of knowledge that you acquire from reading is only going to enhance your capacity to be a good journalist. And yeah, I just read. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Read. Thank you for listening to the I Like Networking podcast. Please remember to share, subscribe, and review the podcast so that more people can find us. All the information discussed on this episode will be on the show notes. See you next time.